So, I'd like to offer some reflections on the Dhamma. So, we had fireworks on Pike Lake last night, kept us up all night. Canada Day, one could get quite patriotic about Canada Day, or you could be quite cynical. So, you could be patriotic, you think Canada's the best place that's ever been invented. Or you could be quite cynical and say patriotism is a load of chauvinism and attachments. and Or you could be very xenophobic and don't let any immigrants in. So there's all manner of ways one could relate to, to Canada Day. But one very obvious way probably is gratitude. Because whenever one thinks of countries, the opportunities that we have as human beings in these countries is truly extraordinary in history and in present-day culture. And gratitude is this important spiritual quality to constantly uh, bring forth into consciousness because it's very easy to complain, like here. I could complain about the deer fly all day, and I do. And the deer fly are wicked, and I wish they were never invented, da-da-da-da-da. But to just to think about the deer fly all the time and miss the robins and the cuckoos and the deer and the green in the sky would be a, a loss of, for me and, and boring for everyone else. So this gratitude is a practical way to bring your heart to some sense of peace, some sense of inner well-being. And I think that's why we're here, because that's what we're... I mean, to sit here for 45 minutes and not do anything, as it were, look at a screen or talk to someone is, is that's also extraordinary and not, not many people are into that most people are into devices now literally noses into devices so to just be with your own mind to be with your own heart for some period of time is is extraordinary and, and to live in a country where you can do that where we feel safe uh, where volcanoes are erupting next door and we're not getting shot at and we're allowed to be Buddhists you know, no, one, no one is saying we can't do this this Buddhist business that we're into where I, I'm allowed to be a monk and things that we shouldn't take for granted so so gratitude and if you think about gratitude gratitude is in terms of Buddhist teaching the problem we have as human beings the reason we suffer is attachment to craving where we don't see the continual longing of the heart for something other something different the continual criticism of the way things are, the continual resistance of the way things are, the continual yearning for something bigger, better, and different, that that restlessness of the human mind is very much based on attachment to desire. It's not bad, it's not wrong, it's human, but it's limited, and it keeps the mind restless. Whereas gratitude, gratitude when it's functioning in a very natural way, in in a very wise way, I'd say, because I think... Gratitude has an element of wisdom in it. Gratitude is the opposite of wanting. It's not wanting, it's, it's uh, being grateful for what's offered. Gratitude is, as a should be, like you should be gratitude, is not really gratitude, it's, it's, uh, it's guilt. 
I should be grateful. That's not gratitude. It's just some kind of guilt trip you lay on yourself. And we as human beings have this capacity to bring forth wholesome states of mind. Unfortunately, we also have the tendency and inclination and bad habit of being victimized by habitual thought, habitual emotions. And there's a sort of struggle that we all are involved in, in terms of abandoning the unwholesome and manifesting the wholesome. And all of us do it in different ways. The Buddhist path is is a path of peace, and it, it has many, many elements in it. The most obvious elements are things like gratitude, ethics, that we as human beings uh, have moral responsibility. Because we can, we can see ourselves in time. And I, can, I can see my speech in time. I can see my actions in time. I can see the results of my own speech on myself and others. I can see the results of my actions, my livelihood on myself and others through time. So if I speak with you, which is in some way aggressive or brutal or... or unkind or, or cutting or all the rest of it, I can see the results. I can see when I did this, over time there's that result. The result socially is alienation. The result inwardly is a lack of love. I can do that, and that's what makes me a moral being. And I have, I have responsibility as a moral being. And taking that seriously is, is a life of um, integrity, impeccability, responsibility. And to do that well is actually quite uh, invigorating. I know when I first started in, in Buddhist practice and I decided to take precepts, which was a few years ago, it was such a relief. It was such a relief. Oh, okay, I have these simple standards, nonviolence, honesty, truthfully, sobriety, things like that. I have these really beautiful standards which now I can, which govern my life and which become my, my home. So Canada isn't just where I was raised and the kind of health system I'm under or uh, the passport I carry and so on and so forth. It's my inner world as I live in, in this country. So Canada is also my ethical boundaries, isn't it? It's, it's also my, uh, my personal way of living in the territory called Canada. And that's my home. And it's not a national home. It's a, it's a personal home. And that, that home which is invested with a sense of concern for others, a sense of concern for the environment, a sense of concern for my own health, for my own well-being, is one which uh, has rewards which are not materialistic, are they? Materialism is always the rewards of, of uh, you get are from some kind of external sources. Well, well these are the rewards of the heart, and, and living impeccably is very rewarding, isn't it? And when I, when, I, when I haven't harmed, and I haven't exploited, and I've tried to use speech in a way which is uplifting rather than degrading, uh, that's like patriotism to, to that which is beautiful. That's like uh, fidelity to that which is beautiful. And being faithful and honoring that which is beautiful is very much part of the, the tradition that I was uh, trained in in Thailand, the tradition of, of, of beauty and that came out not so much in in terms of physical beauty, obviously, but it's talked the beauty of the heart. And Ajahn Chah would use that way of training us oftentimes if we were just sloppy or heedless in some kind of way, or we made things 
the craft that we did. We made ball stands and robes and so on, and they were done in a haphazard way or done in a rushed way or done in a way where we wasted materials. He'd often say, that's not beautiful. It's a lovely way to think about it, rather than, oh, you're, you're heedless, you're dumb, oh, no, you're working too, too fast, and that's the kind of put-down way of reflection. And this was always like, how can I do this beautifully? How can I live my life of responsibility beautifully? And these are, these are rewards which are peaceful. You know, they, have a, they have a good effect on the heart. We all know this. We all know this, but it's good to kind of remember. This is a part, part of, the, of our path. Very important part of the path: generosity, gratitude, ethics, morality, responsibility. Each of us lives a different social life. Most of you don't live here in the monastery. You come as guests, or you come for a talk. So you have different social environments, but the ethos is the same. The intention is the same. So the idea of of Buddhist monasticism is that it's actually just a um, a symbol in society. And that, that phrase that there's a an author called Fritjof Schoen, who once wrote, he said that not everyone has the vocation of a monastic, but everyone has a little bit of the monastic in them. And I think that bit of the monastic is, is that, that aspiration for peace, that aspiration for transcendence, that aspiration for truth. And that's why we're here. Now, if we're here for rock and roll, that would be another era. <laughs> it's something different. And these are good things. These are, these are really wholesome things. A beautiful part of human, human nature and human culture. But to be peaceful is not so easy, partially because the, the inputs we get from society can be quite jarring, uh, partially because the inputs from society are very uh, enticing and very distracting, partially because the way we, we, we have evolved as individuals, we've picked up uh, ego habits from childhood or from youth, which gave us some sense of being able to make it in the world. But then those ego habits become structured into our hearts and become ways of relating and reacting which are not peaceful, which are not skillful, but are there. Even though I might not want to be aggressive, I find I'm aggressive. Even though I don't want to be afraid, I find I'm afraid. Even though I don't want to be uh, obsessed by the by the internet, I'm obsessed by the internet, or whatever it might be. So even though our intentions can be very high and very altruistic and, and very noble, the reality of our heart sometimes isn't so noble, isn't so altruistic, and is downright embarrassing sometimes. So what to do? Well, first of all, to live a good life the best you can, to make the one social engagement with life as wholesome as possible. So we use precepts and moral considerations and the considerations of our personal responsibilities as a framework for living in the world. And that's our monastery, the framework we live in. So someone who uh, works in the federal government, that's their framework. And someone who works in a monastery, that's their framework. But the awareness and the capacity for reflection is the same, whether I reflect on the interactions I have here at the monastery or I have in in Parliament or something like that, it's still the human heart reflecting and contemplating. Meditation is, is, of course, a way of slowing everything down, calming the mind down, of training the mind to not just be dispersed and scattered and, and reactive all the time. And that's a, a very important part in, in Buddhist practice because it lays a foundation for mindfulness, for reflection, for stillness, and for self-understanding. Because when you're sitting in meditation, 
most people don't find it easy when they come to it. And your mind might be feeling dull or sleepy or restless and not, not interested in doing it, want to do something else. And, but there's something in you that wants to understand that now. So you stop. You stop for 45 minutes, you stop for an hour, you stop for a, a retreat or whatever, and you, and you learn to stop. You learn to stop and look, stop and look, stop and look. And that's a big one in our society. Society is always running, 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 running from one event to another, and stopping is quite hard. So notice here, we come and, and you wait for the monk to give a talk, everyone's stopped. You know, there's a kind of sense of, well, we don't have to gossip right now. We can just be still. And I think, I think there's a great appreciation of that. I know I, I like that, where we don't have to be uh, human beings interacting all the time the way human beings do. Not that that's bad or wrong, it can be fun, it can be good. But just that, that chance to pause and to stop and to reflect what's going on with my heart. Where's my mind at right now? What is the mood of the mind? And to make that reflection something which is constant, a kind of constancy. And that's, that's a kind of sense of faith and, and patriotism and belonging, which is important. The constancy of reflection. That, that's what I want to be faithful to. Now, the constancy of reflection isn't a demand that I feel that I always feel compassionate or kind or generous. It's not any kind of a attachment to an idealism of how it should be, but rather it is a reflection of how it is, how I am now, what is it like now to be here incarnate in this body with these set of emotions and these sets of uh, parameters that come through, through consciousness. What's it like to be here now? That's awareness, that's mindfulness. And that's a kind of territory I think should be patriotic too. Because it's only in reflection that we can understand ourselves. Reactivity is not understanding, it's just habit. But reflection is that awakened mind which which notices, oh, this is, you know, I'm really feeling sad today, or, or I'm really feeling excited, or this person gets up my nose, or that person I'm really attracted to, or I wish it was different, or I wish it could be like this all the time. The mind's always moving, always commenting, reacting, doing stuff, and but the reflective mind's not doing anything except knowing. It just knows. It's stopping. And that stopping is the most subtle part of, of peace. If we want to be peaceful, we have to make the causes for peace, don't we? We can't expect the heart to be peaceful if we don't lay the causes for peace. So if I'm, if I'm always engaged in, in very distracting things, there's no way I'm going to be peaceful. If I'm always uh, like engaged in just doing stuff, always externalized, always exciting the mind, always finding something interesting to do. There's nothing morally wrong about that, but the mind which is always out, always distracted or reacting all the time, that mind is not trained. It's not a peaceful mind. So if we want to lay a foundation for peace, if we want to have a peaceful mind, we need to create the causes of peace. And one of the causes of peace is sense restraint. This is one of the fundamental training principles of monastic life, sense restraint, and contentment with little. These are two aspects which are very much in the renunciant mode. Uh, contentment with little lays a foundation for peace, because obviously if I, if I can be content with little, I don't need much. If I'm not content with little and I need a lot, it's going to be hard to be content. And then sense restraint. Sense restraint is the capacity to not go out, 
not because it's immoral to go out, but to stay home. So when we, like when we wait for, like here, you say this morning we're waiting for the lunch to start and everyone was nice and quiet and then I came in and, and we started the rituals for lunch or now you're, you're waiting for a, the monk to come to give a Dhamma talk or whatever. We're, to some extent we're practicing sensory strain, aren't we? We're here. Our senses are operating. You know, you're hearing things and you're noticing people and you're thinking mind is generating uh, material from whatever. But you're not, you're not just simply following that. You're not just reacting to it. Or say like when you sit in meditation and you feel pain or you feel discomfort, like just something like scratching. You know, if you've meditated for a while and you feel scratching, you don't scratch. You just learn to do that, don't you? You don't just kind of react because you want to scratch, but you know, no, that's itching feels this way. And you use, you use the very thing which usually would get you distracted, you use that to calm the mind. And that's, that's completely different. It's not wrong to scratch yourself. And usually when I say this, everyone starts scratching themselves. But, but the principle, the principle of knowing some sense contact that comes to you, feeling sense contact that comes to you, and it's marginally sort of uncomfortable, and just witnessing to that, witnessing to the desire to scratch. And anyone who does meditation has to learn that pretty quick. Because you itch all the time. And it's natural. You hurt all the time, whatever. And it's no big deal. It's not hurtful. But what you learn to do is you learn to take the witnessing posture rather than moving all the time with the body. You learn to be still. And this is an important part of training. So you learn like the body is here now. So like my my right ankle hurts. Not badly, you know. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to be hospitalized. It hurts. It feels this way. And I can know that. And when I take that minor discomfort and I use that as an object of awareness, what happens? Desire dies. It comes up again because it's biological and eventually I'll have to move or I will be hospitalized. But biologically, it's saying, move, 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 move. It's scratch. And now I'm saying, well, do I have to? Not really. This is uncomfortable, that's all. And I begin to not grasp the feeling of discomfort, non-grasping. And that's the most subtle part of peace, the most difficult part. So socially we need to live in a way which creates the causes for peace. But you can make all the causes for peace you want. It's good. But someone can rain on your, on your parade, is that what they call it? You know, someone can put a fly in your ointment. Uh, you can put a fly in your own ointment. Uh, so there's the deeper, the deeper and more subtle uh, understanding of peace is what we mean by non-grasping or non-attachment. Non-attachment does not mean you don't feel. In fact, you fully feel. You're fully, you're fully with the feeling body and the, the feeling of emotions and all the rest of it. But you begin to notice that that which knows, that which is aware is not the pain, is not the discomfort, is not the sorrow, is not the fear. And knowing is not that, it knows. And you, and you learn that exercise again and again through very simple things like pain in your ankle. You just take that, like so I'm feeling my right ankle, which is on my left side, <laughs> because my legs are crossed, and feeling that, and 
Now it's falling asleep. Foot's falling asleep. And it feels that way. But if I just pay attention to it, because it's not really painful, it's just neutral. It's just the way it is. And then, and then the discomfort builds. And, and then eventually I move. That's fine. I move. But, but in the interim, I can now know the way things are. I can know discomfort. And in the knowing of discomfort, I begin to really challenge the mind which always wants comfort, wants happiness, wants excitement, wants interest, wants love, whatever it wants. And it doesn't have it. So in a little way, I challenge that and say, well, wait a minute. Is peace dependent on my ankles? Maybe not. Yes, maybe more. Yes, maybe not. I have to watch. I watch. Well, actually, the knowing is peaceful already. So there's the knowing, and then there's a feeling in the body, or the awareness. And this is, this is a kind of contemplative way of reaching what we mean by non-grasping, or non-attachment. And you begin to see within the, the flow, the movement, there is the stillness of knowing. And, and the object, or another way, is that the objects are in space, and then that knowing is like space, awareness is like space, or you know the, the different analogies we have. You have you have a book, right? And you, this one I use often. You have all the print. Then you go to the next page, and you have more print, and more print. And you're absorbed into the print all the time, and then you notice, well, there's the white, there's the page itself. I never noticed the page. Because I was so absorbed into the print. Well, in the next page, one chapter after another. Same way with the with the movement of of our sense experience, the bodily feelings we have, the emotions we have, the memories, the um, habitual reactivity that we suffer from, and so on. These are movements which can be known, and when they're known as movements rather than as my personal property or my fault, and when we're not just kind of mesmerized, but then when we can step back and say, oh, yeah, that's pain, and that's joy, we begin to touch the peace of the heart, which is beyond pleasure and pain. We still want pleasure. That's our biological bit, right? I mean, I'd much rather have young ankles, but I wouldn't want a young... I wouldn't want... I'd want I, I wouldn't mind 20-year-old ankles, but I wouldn't want my mind where it was 40 years ago. <laughs> I like my mind where it is now, thank you. <laughs> so there's the, the social aspect of, of realizing, of laying a foundation for peace and laying causes for peace. And then there's what I would, I would we don't really have a good language in, in, in Western culture because most of our spiritual language is embedded in, in Christianity and Judaism and they're theistic religions and so some of the language is based upon a kind of theistic philosophy. Not that that's wrong, but... So we use words like transcendence or nibbana or whatever it might be, but just use the simple word peace. You know, what is peace? What is peace? Is peace is peace just sense contentment? Yeah, yeah. When I get everything I want, yeah. There's a kind of peacefulness there, but that's not a transcendent peace. It's a dependent peace. As much as possible, we try to create conditions where we have good health and and good diet and good governance and and do something about the deer flies. <laughs> but, but deeper than that, is that all there is? Is there just a rearrangement of the deck chairs, right, to get the right sunshine? Is that the, is that the only possibility for human peace? Well, no. The, the possibility for human peace is within sickness and wellness. 
It's within good fortune and bad fortune. It's within praise and blame. It's within success and failure. Because even failure, which is painful, which is unpleasant, the knowing is there. You know, I know the feeling of failure. And if I take failure as that's who I really am, I am failure, blah, then I'm toast. I'm done. But if I see, oh, failure is conditioned, there are causes and conditions for failure, what could I do in the future to be successful? Fine. But that's not my real home. That's not my, my real home is the knowing, is the awareness. And then failure can teach me, maybe, maybe not. Success can teach me, and then when I do this, I, I get a good result. If I'm in the workshop and I, and I fail yet again in a mortise and tenon joint, and <laughs> you say, you idiot weirdo, or whatever. No, no, that's not the way you learn, it's just, uh, with this as condition that arises. So when I do this, I get that result. All right, causality. That's what I can watch. And that's what we watch in our, in our conventional life, in our, in our social life, in our life of personal responsibility, in, in our professional lives, in, the, in, in our lives where we make money to put bread on the table and pay for the mortgage. That's where we watch causality. But the knowing isn't caused. It's not created. It's not the same as sun, day, night, wind, deer flies, now, not in the winter. That's causality. That's caused, right? Through nature. And we live in an emotional body, in in an energy body, and we're incarnate in a social situation which is governed by causality. But the knowing or awareness isn't, isn't caused. And because it's not caused, it's not, it doesn't have a quality. You know, it doesn't, like right now, you know what you feel like. Right? So you might like being here, you might feel bored, you might have painful ankles, you might feel really vibrant. But the knowing of that has none of those qualities, right? It doesn't have a taste or a flavor or a structure or it's not caused. And because it's not caused, it's reliable. Weather is not reliable. Human beings are not reliable. These bodies are unreliable because they're caused. They're dependently originated. They arise from conditions. They endure for a while and then they cease. And this is the nature of our emotional life, our energy life, our social life. It's caused. So it was, it was uncaused. We can say, well, awareness, awareness is caused. But is it? Is that knowing? That sense of presence, say. Like sense of presence. Use that word. Will the sense of presence be different when you go home? When you're having dinner? When you're dying? Same sense of presence because it has no quality. And and that that understanding, I think, and that trust, and that's the... I think that's where the most profound patriotism is necessary. <laughs> if I go back to that theme, the most pr- profound sense of what your real home is. To do that, to have a good country is fantastic. Because right? it's hard to do this kind of subtle attentiveness in a, in a culture or in a land or in a situation where there's fear and there's hatred and there's violence and there's you know all of that going on or or environmental degradation just surviving 
when you're just dealing with a body which is coughing up and pollution or whatever, so it's harder. I mean, it's possible. It's possible. So we have the we have this opportunity as Canadians in in a culture which allows us to do this. And we have a kind of beautiful, beautiful opportunity. And for that, we can be grateful. And for that, we can give back. We can give back goodness, can't we? We can, you know, just our interactions with other human beings. We don't have to. I'm not going to put a little. Canadian flag on my robe, whoops, wrong, wrong show, or a tattoo here. I'm not going to go that far. I'm a different generation. <laughs> Don't do tattoos. So it's not patriotism as chauvinism, you know, rah, rah, rah. Like we have, we have a lot of Americans now, and, and some, of the, some of the Americans, it's things they have to suffer from Canadians. We're always, we're always ripping the uh, Americans down. I say, oh, here we go again. Canadian chauvinism, right? You know, it's kind of chauvinism. My country's better than your country. My football team's better than your football. That's that's not really. That's that's a bit silly, and, and it's fun to play actually <laughs> with the Americans that we have. But but more seriously, you know, that that sense of patriotism as this gratitude to a good country, and, and, and thinking, what can I, what can I offer this country? What 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 can I do to to continue it being a good country? What 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 can I give to it? Rather than the mind kind of saying, well, why doesn't the government have less taxes? Or, you know, why don't they do my snow more often? Or this kind of whining, <laughs> whinging uh, that the human mind can somehow blame them up there, wherever there is, which is a very, very uh, sad state of mind. But the other is, you know, what can I do? So partially, I can live a responsible life, but the life of non-grasping is actually probably the most productive life. Why is it productive? Because in non-grasping the ego falls away. And when the ego falls away, you're utterly available. You're completely available because you don't need anything. Sure, your body needs something. You you need to have a nice coat in winter, a nice pair of fuzzy boots or something, (laughs) and heating, and propane. Sure, yeah. But egotistically, you don't. You don't need. Because that's fallen away because one's real home is no longer ego and, and self-referencing and it's not like an endless Buddhism is not like an endless selfie we're always thinking about yourself right? it's rather letting go of that into knowing the way things are and then the heart is free to respond to give, to serve or to be passive when it's not necessary to do anything because sometimes it's not you don't have to do anything you're just being is sufficient and then, then sometimes doing so I think this, this path is actually a way of, of you know, it may sound very Buddhist kind of to say that, but the more you practice the path of enlightenment, the more, I think it's the best thing you can do for society. Sometimes people accuse us of being selfish, right? I'd say, well, why don't you try it? <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like as if, as if meditation and contemplation is a selfish activity. It's not a selfish activity. It's a contemplative activity. It's an activity of wisdom which understands, which understands the nature of the human condition. And from that understanding, you're going to get the best result. Because ignorance is what makes things confused and difficult. So, happy Canada Day.